Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common. Go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this week's episodes. In the red corner... Things are not going terrific for Bob Hoskins in London Tan on the eve of impressing his American investors with his plans to build an Olympic stadium in East London. The shit hits the veritable fan because some bastards only went and blew up Eric. But Bob ain't going to take it lying down and begins his own quest for vengeance from 1980. It's the Long Good Friday. London. Good Friday. Not just any Good Friday, but the long Good Friday. Outside of church? You don't go crucifying people outside of church not on Good Friday. Harold Shand, undisputed king of London's underworld. Now he's setting up the biggest business deal of his career. Hands across the ocean, right? To the future. Someone is out to stop him. Think of anybody who might have an old score to settle us. Who's big enough to take you on? Someone, somewhere, knows. Right? I want the man who knows. Right. Who fancies what? While in the blue corner, Daniel Craig is dealing with his own shitstorm as he gets strong-armed into a dodgy deal involving a million stolen ecstasy tablets. Can he use his smarts to get the smarties sold and make some sweet money in the process? Or is he going to find himself buried, either physically or even metaphorically, under one of Michael Gambon's lengthy speeches? From 2004, it's the movie that landed Craig the role of 007, we're tucking into layer cake. Preparation is everything. First, you need a good egg. Toss in a handful of villains. And one large portion of 
Try to make it two large portions. And top it off with a liberal sprinkling of mindless freedom of expression. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. I want to lick every inch of you. I'm Alex Zane. <laughs> that is a diabolical liberty. <laughs> I'm Chris Tilly. <laughs> Joining us, Victoria? I'm Vicky Crompton. Hello. So welcome to this week's criminal kerfuffle as the Long Gun Friday goes up against Layer Cake. Now, these were Chris's choices this week. So uh, please, Chris, show us your working out. Well, I thought they would fill the gangster-shaped hole in our listings, as previously discussed. We've done 50 pairings and we've not done a gangster film yet, so we've got a couple now uh, after our belt after this. Um, also, what I didn't realise until actually doing my research this week is The Long Good Friday debuted 40 years ago this month. What? At the Edinburgh Festival. It didn't actually come out until 1981, although everywhere says it's a 1980 movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it debuted at that festival uh, in August. So okay. it's, we're also celebrating an anniversary. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for doing that. I'll just cross that from my notes of uh, The Long Good Friday, which I definitely knew already <laughs> and was going to announce. But thank you. That's great news. Uh, great news. Uh, so uh, the clue you gave on last week's show, and I'm going to enjoy hearing this again. <laughs> just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Not the Godfather. Not the Godfather. <laughs> right, right. Not okay. the Godfather. That's, a, that's the kicker there. So that was the clue on last week's show. Now, you added another clue on Twitter. If you mm. don't follow us, you should. We are at ClashPod, as well as the clues for each episode. There's loads of extras on there about what we discuss on the pod. So what was your second clue? Well, I was actually going to go with just simply hot cross buns. Mm. I like that as a cue, but then I thought, no, I'm going to make it a bit more, a bit more helpful. Mm. So I made it hot double cross buns. Yeah. Wasn't helpful though, was it? No, no, no one got either film. So I didn't know uh, the hot cross buns thing. Did you, Victoria? Do you know why that's a clue? Because of cake. Yes, and and because oh, because of superstition. What's that? What's that? So, what superstition? No. How's it connect? (laughs) Because in the Long Good Friday, there's don't put a hat on the bed because it's bad luck, Mm. and don't miss the lift because it's bad luck, Mm. and aren't. Mm, no, no, it's I've not said that. it. It's no. not that. How does that relate to hot cross buns? <laughs> You've thought... just listed two things that have nothing to do with Do you know what I've done? Again, I've confused Easter and God with magic. Easter? Right. So Alex is going to tell you. Go on, Alex. No, no, no. I think you should do it. It was your clue and it's very good. I didn't know. I had to look it up. Well, you traditionally eat hot cross buns on Good Friday. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. So it's, a, it's really an excellent clue. It is a great clue, uh, but these are the suggestions that came in based on that second clue. Anthony Peacock, and some of these are really uh, good future clashes. Anthony Peacock says John Wick versus Payback. Tom says Carlito's Way versus Sexy Beast. Samuel George, Point Break versus Fast and the Furious. Anthony M. Rose, Goodfellas versus Casino. And Jeremiah said Salt versus Atomic Blonde. But none of them were right. So, Chris, you stepped in again. Yes, in an unprecedented move <laughs> for the podcast. Mm. Uh, I asked if people wanted a third clue. They definitely did. So I posted a third clue. Which was? Which was uh, these two gangster films, I did make it very specific, are uh, bonded by Bond, Bond James Bond. 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 
James Bond. Uh, so a few more suggestions came in. Layer Cake was immediately announced as one. Paul Jordan went Layer Cake versus The Untouchables. Philip Paul Burns and Cameron Payne went Layer Cake versus Logan Lucky, going for the Daniel Craig connection. Obviously, The Untouchables, Sean Connery. But it was only one person. Actually, uh, Samuel George suggested The Untouchables and Road to Perdition, which is actually really good because they both star James Bonds. He did have more than one guest, so yeah, that's true as well. Naughty, but yeah, and mm. I like that pairing, but wrong. No, Liam DC. Uh, congratulations to you. You are the only person with a right answer this week. Layer Cake versus The Long Good Friday. Chris, explain the Bond connection in case people don't realise it. So, uh, The Long Good Friday features Pierce Brosnan's first big screen role mm. as an IRA assassin. And of course, Layer Cake stars current James Bond, uh, Daniel Craig. But also, the cinematographer of Long Good Friday, right. uh, Philip Mayhew. I went for the Pierce Brosnan thing, but go on. He was the DP on GoldenEye and Casino Royale. Oh, hello. Okay. And Beverly Hills Chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's covered the full gamut. Why do I not have the trailer for Beverly Hills Chihuahua queued up? I didn't know you were going to mention it. That is one of the greatest trailers <laughs> ever. Chihuahua. Chihuahua. But there's lots more connections. Well, yeah. Shall we, uh, shall we take a look at some of the connections that Victoria and I might have got here? I can see you chomping at the bit. So do you want to go first? Uh, I'll start with my most basic one. Uh, my! Haven't the Docklands changed a lot in 20 years? Yeah. Canary Wolf. Hmm? Mine is, killed a man and don't feel great about it, have a long shower. <laughs> yes! Good! Cle- cleanse yourself. <laughs> They've both done it. All right, um, I- I've got one. Is it? Uh, it is one of the connections, and I can't believe I'm actually allowed to say this legitimately, having done my working out. Is it Sharks? Yeah, okay. So Bob Hoskins in The Long Good Friday says, they turn the swimming pool into a scene from Jaws. And Michael Gambon says to Daniel Craig and Layer Cake, do you know what a remora fish is? <laughs> and a remora fish is a sucker fish that attaches itself to sharks and eats the detritus from the shark's food. Bosh. I did not know that. Tenuous, but fine. Huh? Vicky, any more? Casual racism. Yes, uh, you could have had casual racism, casual xenophobia and casual homophobia. Mm. Any one of the three. Yeah, the holy trinity. <laughs> well, um, oh, I've got a nicer one to... Uh, to end on, I guess, unless you've got any more. Uh, is it Dexter Fletcher? That was my last Yay! one. Yeah. <laughs> Dexter Fletcher. Dexter he's Fletcher. Obviously in Layer Cake and he's the kid leaning on the car who goes, give some money for watching your car to Bob Hoskins in The Long Good Friday. Uh, you could have had villains in freezers. Mm, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Colin spends uh, his uh, dead time in oh, a yeah. freezer. Of course. Um, and also, you know, we're going to talk spoilers today. The shock ending of both films is a big connection between both of them yeah, that our protagonist gets bumped off. Uh, and, a, and a weird one, but both had potential sequels written where the protagonist was now living in the Caribbean, yeah. even though he was supposedly dead at the end of each of these stories. But was he? It's, it's ambiguous. It's not, you're, not, you're never sure whether they're going to die. I mean, it looks like they're going to die, but they're not actually dead on screen. So, well, you know, it's a sort of grey area. It's not. Um, but what I'm going with is crime doesn't pay for Cockney Corleone's. That's nice. Crime doesn't pay for Cockney Corleone's. That is our connection this week. So, Chris, you gave Victoria layer cake and you gave me the Long Good Friday. We do it chronologically. So I will begin with a synopsis of the Long Good Friday. 
Bob Hoskins is crime kingpin Harold Shand, and Landon Tan is his manor. He's the big fish and has kept the peace between all the various gangs for quite some time. He's now gone legit-ish with plans to build a stadium in the Docklands for London's famous 1988 Olympic Games. But would you Adam and Eve it? Someone started offing his crew and he's got no idea who it is. Him and his wife Helen Mirren set about trying to get to the bottom of things while attempting to save face in front of his mafia investors. Anyway, turns out it was all bloody Jeff's fault. Bloody Jeff and Colin. Stupid bloody Colin. The end. <laughs> what a strange angle to take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's... It's quite a difficult film to write the synopsis for, mm. and I'll explain uh, a little bit why when we get into it, but I did spend a great deal of the start of this film very fucking confused yeah. as to what was going on. Auto, casino, stabbing, a bar blowing up. What is this, a gang war? No, no question. Harold and I have no doubt that by tomorrow the problem will be settled. Oh. 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 Go to the car, Billy, or I'll blow your spine off. It's not a shooter, is it, Harold? Oh, don't be silly, Billy. When I come hunting for you with me fingers... I've treated you lot well, even when you was out of order, right? Well, now there's been an eruption! One of my closest friends... He's lying out there in the freezer. And believe me, all of you... Nobody goes home until I find out who done it. What should have been the greatest day of Harold's life suddenly becomes the longest. Suddenly he's fighting for survival. You kidding? We got gang warners, right? We already have. Colin's been carved up and I've got a bomb in me casino and you say nothing unusual. The Long Good Friday. A terrifying nightmare from which there is no escape. Friday. Let's uh, discuss our individual histories uh, with this movie. So, Christopher. Uh, I watched this film as a teen and very much liked it. And then I watched it again when I was working at Time Out. There was an anniversary. I think it was maybe the 25th anniversary of the film. And I was invited on a boat with John McKenzie, the director, to go up the Thames towards Canary Wharf, like they do in the film, and interview him while we were on the boat. And I was super excited for this, and watching it a second time, I loved it even more. I think it, it's a, I think you can enjoy it a bit more the second time when you do know what's happening, um, because, as you say, it is quite a complicated plot. Uh, so I was super excited to talk to him. He was didn't seem that happy to speak to me, because um, Time Out had given the film a very, uh, not a particularly positive review. On its re-release or originally? In 1980. Oh. In 81, I guess. And I was there because I'd been involved in a, in a feature that we'd just done of the greatest London films or the greatest British films, and we put it in the top five, I think, something mm. like that. But he was super, still super angry about this review. <laughs> and I said, I didn't write it, and I loved the film. He goes, I don't care. You work for Time Out. They didn't like the film. I said, I, I was two years old. <laughs> you cannot blame me for this. <laughs> oh, to be watching this conversation happen on a boat going down the Thames. No, this, no. <laughs> so uh, he was fine after that, though. We had a lovely chat. And it was, it was fun, funny talking about that scene while you were, like, living that scene. It was quite an interesting place to 
chat. Did he tell you how much he hates shooting on boats? Because I was watching uh, some documentary footage of him going, never shoot on a boat. It's the worst. He did, actually. Yeah, yeah. no, he said how tricky it was. It was, yeah. While, while someone was shooting us <laughs> on a boat. <laughs> but yeah, so that is my history. Vicky? It's the first time I've seen it. Um, I know it's very well regarded and I, I know of it, but I just never took the time to watch it. And, and Alex? Yep. Uh, this is uh, a double whammy uh, this week, uh, Victoria and I. Uh, this was a, a first watch for me. I will say I was aware of it and its legacy, but, and I'm going to come clean at the start of our two episodes this week, gangster films are something I rarely seek out to watch. It's not a genre that I'm a huge fan of particularly, and um, and I like to think that somehow I've instilled that feeling in you guys which is why we've never done them on the show <laughs> maybe you have because i'd <laughs> say now. that more of my favorite films are gangster films than any other genre so you've somehow <laughs> took maybe whenever we've been in the pub and i've been throwing words and titles out there you've just been just throwing them back no, at me yeah, did no. you say the relic <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll do free jack um yeah i think it's because i find them quite stressful i find them very stressful films to watch and I was a little bit hungover when I watched this and I uh, found uh, this quite a stressful film. And like I said, very confusing to begin with. That said, I did love it. And I do want to say on air publicly, thank you for making me watch this, Chris. Good. Because I, I, I haven't listened back, but I did feel like I was. it was met with quite a pregnant pause and some disappointment when I suggested these films last week. <laughs> <laughs> it was. But that's only because it's impossible to react when you've got no idea what you're letting yourself in for. I'm like, right, I, I'll tell you afterwards. And I do think the filmmaker, the director and the writer would be happy to know that you found this a stressful watch because I think that is what they were going for. Yeah. So uh, do you want a little bit of backstory? To it. the Long Good Friday. So, <clears throat> excuse me, writer Barry Keefe drew on his experiences as a reporter uh, for London's Stratford Express paper in the 60s. So he was doing that while the crazed twins ruled the <laughs> East End. And two scenes in the film, which I'll explain later when we get to them, actually come directly from his time interviewing criminals in the East End of London. So he decided he wanted to write an American-style gangster movie set in London. Um, but it was obviously his exposure to the gangsters of East London and South East London as well that gave him a lot of the film's dialogue. When you say exposure, uh, do you know about what happened to him when he was 17 years old? No. He was at a pub. Uh, it was one of the craze pubs. And he went for a wee. And Ronnie was in there. The more dangerous of the Grey brothers and the more predatory of the gay brothers. And suggested that he have a look at this. And he was super expecting to see uh, Ronnie Cray's penis. <laughs> but it was actually his gun. He wanted him to look at his gun. And um, he, so he showed him his gun at a pub urinal. And that's what started him down that path of sort of being interested in gangsters, is having this terrifying encounter in a, in a loo. <laughs> Silly men. Do you know what it's like in the women's toilets? It's fantastic. Yeah. All we do is make friends, have a chat, get back out there. You go into the men's. First of all, it's disgusting. And now you've got to look at some man's gun. No. Yeah, but, but I mean, I think it's quite a unique set of circumstances for it to be Ronnie Cray next to you. Yeah. If me and Alex have a wee next to each other, it's fine. Is that where it hits your Venn diagram of like, <laughs> you want to see someone famous, but not that badly. So it's like... <laughs> I mean, I, just, I don't... I, I, I keep my gun very private. And so that's why Chris hasn't seen it. I'm always packing. But, have, you, uh, have you ever weed next to a famous person? 
Uh, have I we next to a famous person? No, I'm, uh, an old producer friend of mine, though, just on this same line, uh, did once uh, use a, a toilet cubicle on a private jet when he was interviewing Tom Jones, and Tom Jones went, I, ne- I need to go to the toilet as well, uh, so um, why don't we just go at the same time? It's fine, we're in men. a tiny cubicle. In a tiny cubicle on a plane, so they ended up, uh, in his own words, crossing swords on a, on a plane. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I uh, I weed next to Jude Law in a church. In a church. On, it was on the, to be fair. It was on the set of um, protest. <laughs> it was uh, on a film set on location for one of the Sherlock Holmes films. But also at, after the premiere of former Clash Pod film The World's End, I weed next to Harvey Weinstein. Did you? Yes. He's a big man. Mm. Physically, mm, yes. No, that doesn't help. No, that doesn't help. <laughs> I didn't see his penis. I didn't see his penis. Right, good. Okay. Because it's famously... Well, I don't want to yeah, go there. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, wish I, I wish I'd looked now. <laughs> well, because you could have witnessed I, for I, the prosecution. That's definitely his She's penis. right. Yeah. <laughs> it is weird. I don't know. It sounds like staring into the mouth of madness looking at his penis. It sounds awful. Awful business. Um, yeah. So... Uh, one of the scenes, actually, I'll do one of the scenes now that uh, I was going to talk about that uh, actually came from Barry Keith's real life. And uh, it's very, really difficult to believe it's this scene in the film. But it's the scene where the man is nailed to no. a floor. He's crucified on uh, a floor uh, in the film. And obviously, uh, he actually saw that happen in real life. Uh, and he says of the story, which gives you an idea of uh, how uh, no one would grass up gangsters in East London. He uh, remembers interviewing the man in hospital and he said, what exactly happened? And the man said, don't you understand English, son? It was a do-it-yourself accident that went wrong. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but he's clearly not going, it was that like every day. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he uh, obviously met a lot of real-life gangsters, did write a Barry O'Keefe, uh, and uh, by all accounts, there were a lot of real-life gangsters on the set, both as extras and technical advisors. Uh, in fact, Bob Hoskins says uh, on that subject that the real-life criminals on the set taught him how to behave in character as Harold Shand. He said... They'd say, nah, Bob, don't shout. Remember the man's dignity. Have you ever heard a more gangster sentence? (laughs) So uh, Barry Keefe was also influenced by looking over the Docklands from his Greenwich flat uh, and a chance meeting with an Irish Republican in a pub. And this idea of gangsters versus terrorists was born. He also says that uh, he'd heard rumours and rumblings from council officials about the redevelopment of the Docklands, which also influenced his script. Uh, Watching an interview with him now in 2005 and looking back on it, he does talk about how extraordinary it was what the film predicted, which was Thatcherism and the culture of the 1980s and how prophetic this movie was in terms of what happened. Uh, He says Shand is the ultimate Thatcherite. So he wrote this story about gangsters who were capitalists versus terrorists who were idealists in the form of the IRA. Now, as a writer, Vicky, you'll be excited to hear he wrote it in three days. Did he? Yeah. That's amazing and also annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But is it? Because John McKenzie says of the script, it was pretty awful. Yes. Uh, A bit theatrical and self-consciously funny, almost like a carry-on, which was totally wrong because we wanted it to be real but with irony. The essence of the story was there, but it needed an awful lot doing to it. 
So they did eight rewrites. It's weird that you say that because I was digging around for ages and it was only this morning that I found that one quote, I think it was in The Independent, where John McKenzie actually says that about the script. And I watched a, a roundtable discussion with a lot of the cast and filmmakers behind The Long Good Friday uh, from 2005 and... I couldn't work out whether there was a little bit of tension. I think there was a little bit of competition. And I don't want to say for sure, because I don't know, between Barry O'Keefe and John McKenzie over who really sort of owns mm. this movie and who whose it is, and both sort of laying claim to various aspects of it, one of which we'll get on to later. Uh, Barry Keefe did say uh, he didn't write it for Hoskins. He wrote it uh, as though he write, was writing it for Humphrey Bogart if he hadn't been dead and had also been English. <laughs> what sort of what what part of Humphrey Bogart are you retaining? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, another thing he says uh, when he talks about he can't believe how he had these visions of what might happen and how accurate they turned out to be. Not only with the Olympics bid, uh, but the line where Bob Hoskins says that London could be the Las Vegas of Europe. And at the time he was giving this interview was when they were trying to turn the Millennium Dome into a super casino mm. in 2005. Uh, so beyond that, uh, it had uh, a working title uh, of The Paddy Factor, Whoa. Yeah, which was changed after fears it would give away too much of the film's plot, you think? <laughs> yeah, apparently Paddy Factor was lingo that the police used for crimes that they wanted to attribute to the IRA. Yeah. Ah. Um, did you hear? Did you read any of the other titles? Uh, I've got a few. Are they all here. really racist? Mm. No. Okay. Uh, Harold's Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Got that one. What else have you got? Uh, Bob Hoskins wanted it to be called H. Okay. Uh, it was originally called The Last Gangster Show when he first came up with the idea before he'd written it. A couple of weird ones: Havoc and Citadel of Blood. Cool. Starring Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> and also that line I keep saying, but I do like it, uh, Diabolical Liberty. They were going to call uh, it Hos- that. Hoskins suggested it. Hos- <laughs> Hoskins was very heavily involved in the writing and the production of this film. Um, and so he was throwing ideas around. But yeah, so the title actually, I've never really clocked that it was The Long Goodbye combined with mm. Good Friday. So it's a very memorable title, though. It is. Uh, the other thing I think we should uh, talk about in terms of its backstory just before we get into the film is uh, the problems it had. Because uh, it was shot in 1979, the end of 1979, but it wasn't released till 1980 or 81? 81. 81. Yeah. And uh, that was because uh, the company that was financing it, uh, part of uh, media impresario Lou Grade's ITC, Incorporated Television Company. They were the people that funded this and then they saw the finished product and were like, no, we don't like this. They felt the IRA connection was overplayed. Uh, It was too long. Then they said it was actually IRA propaganda and Lou Grade was worried uh, about having his cinemas bombed by the IRA, which John McKenzie then said to him, how, if it's IRA propaganda, are they going to bomb your cinemas? That doesn't make any sense. So uh, on top of that, they wanted to release it in America. So um, as is the want of certain people, um, Chris's Peabody, Harvey Weinstein being one of them, they uh, recut it. Uh, They recut the movie and revoiced Bob Hoskins entirely uh, so that Harold Shand, and they were doing this for an American audience, now had a Wolverhampton accent. 
And they were so impressed with the job they'd done that Bob Hoskins tells a story that they were like, they were like, come and see it. It's really good. And he's like, what? <laughs> and they were like, no, it's re- we've done it really well. And so he goes down and he goes, all right, yeah, no, you have done it really well. You have done it really well. I'm still going to fucking sue you. No, I've seen him talk about this. He says, 10 minutes in, I stood up and shouted, you're Nick, and, and slapped an injunction on them. It's so Bob Hoskins. And all the great actors of the time, of, of, of the century, Alec Guinness, uh, John Gilgood, Richard Burton, all got involved and said, um, we'll, we'll appear in court on your behalf because taking an actor's voice is the worst thing you can do. So... Uh, they were terrified of that really? bad publicity. I think Warren Beatty was another one, and uh, obviously, like ITC, the film company, and, and Lou Grade, they wanted to be in with all these actors, so they were like, okay. And then um, uh, Barry Hansen, the film's producer, he wanted to buy back the film uh, to prevent it being screened on ITV, which was another plan, uh, and he also <laughs> said uh, they, the cuts that they'd made were execrable and added up to about 75 minutes of a film that was literal nonsense. <laughs> so uh, George Harrison... Uh, Former Beatle George Harrison uh, was the one who, in the end, uh, stumped up the money to buy the rights back. Um, his company, Handmade Films, bought the rights for ITC uh, from ITC and gave it a cinema release. Uh, Bob Hoskins says of that that uh, George Harrison later told him, "If I'd seen the film, I never would have bought it. I'm a pacifist, and it's all <laughs> violence." <laughs> But nevertheless, it got the cinema release. Well, well, speaking of violence, there's a great book about handmade films called Very Naughty Boys, which I really recommend. And uh, Barry, Barry Keefe is, is quoted in there as saying that just before Christmas, we were when they were um, trying to figure out what to do with the film, when ITC still owned it, he said, we were all sitting around in our office in Carnaby Street. The film looked dead in the water. I never thought the bloody thing was ever going to see the light of day. And there was Bob Hoskins with a bottle of vodka and two poodles on his lap he'd bought at Christmas. Uh, as Christmas presents for someone. He said, wait a minute, there's four of us here. I know a geezer for 10 grand, that's only 2,500 each. He'd wipe them out. <laughs> so Bob Hoskins was considering having Lou Grade assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> we'll blame the vodka. But um, yeah, it's a bit of sort of, you know, life imitating art there. These poodles will do it for bone each. <laughs> Um, and there's also there's an extra on the on the Blu-ray called Hands Across the Ocean, um, which shows you. So although the version that was released in America retained Bob Hoskins' accent and put those scenes back in, there were four or five um, moments in the film where they kept the dubbing because they were worried that the Americans wouldn't understand. And so the words that got that got changed, Nosh was <laughs> changed, Geezer, Glasshouse, Bollocks was changed, Nicked, Gobbed, Wireless was changed. Uh, National Service and Salisbury Plain was changed. <laughs> <laughs> Salisbury Plain became survival course. Yeah. Uh, and I've watched it. They've shown the footage on the Blu-ray. It's, it looks like he's saying that. Um, bollocks becomes balls. Uh, wireless becomes bazooka. What? Which what? makes no... But for the radio? Like, what? Yeah, why, a radio becomes a bazooka. He's talking about what they're carrying when they're doing their National Service. Yeah. And they're not carrying a, a big wireless. They're carrying a big bazooka. <laughs> cool. Great. Well, on that uh, bombshell, shall we begin our journey through this movie? And uh, just just because I'm going to do it, uh, there's no better way to start this movie. As my first experience of it, I was like, what is this wonder? This is it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I could, 
Oh, there it is. There's the sax. <laughs> there it is. There's that sexy sax. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. Oh. Uh, well done, uh, Frank Monkman, I believe. Yeah, Francis Monkman. Francis Monkman. What an incredible score. It's balls out, isn't it? Oh. It's not subtle. It's very in your face. Weirdly, it's a song I've heard a lot in my life because before every match at Crystal Palace, they play that music. Really? Which is really rad. I've never understood why. They would often play that and Holly Johnson Love Train. <laughs> Don't ask me why. <laughs> It's, it's over. It's over east, though, isn't it, Crystal Palace? No, south. south is it? Yeah. Oh, right. well, it's south not like east in it. It's not a bloody east in it. It's 100% south. Don't do what Pete Donaldson did and call my dad a cockney on the football ramble. <laughs> okay. He's not a cockney, he's a south Londoner. I don't know what that means. Uh, right, uh, so... Um, this film is... Uh, well, uh, it opens, uh, and as I've said... Confusingly, um, <clears throat> we get the sexy sax uh, that I just played. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and then we get a, a lot of things happening. Uh, a man uh, with a suitcase full of money uh, looks pretty pleased with himself uh, as he packets a couple of wads from that in his inside pocket. This turns out to be Colin. Uh, Colin, uh, who I didn't recognise for the whole thing, and I'm going, Aww. I know him, I know him. Who is he? I know him. He's a very beautiful man. So yeah, that should he? have. He's bloody Belloc from Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's the yeah, villain, the charming Nazi. Yeah! Yeah, 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 which was which was just a year later. That's because I knew I knew him, but I was like, but you haven't changed at mm. all from when. But I did. I just didn't look it up. And one of the villains in Hot Fuzz. Is yes, he? yeah, but it was Belloc. Oh, that yeah. I was, it's Belloc, yeah, he's Belloc. He's Belloc. He'll always be Belloc. I, I couldn't believe that I didn't recognise him until afterwards. But yeah, uh, so that's Colin. Uh, and he is in Belfast, as it turns out. Although, uh, you know, I, I know we talked about this off air before about putting a city's name on the screen. I could have bloody done with it. You could have here. done with it there. No, but they fair. purposely didn't tell you where they were. And there's nothing to, t- to show you where they are oh, because they don't want you to know he's in Belfast. Yeah. Yeah, it was all very confusing. Uh, I did enjoy uh, him uh, chatting up, that young lad uh, in the pub. Uh, another person who, and hands up on this one, I did not know who he was until I looked him up. Go on. But I thought he was somebody because mm. he had a look about him. That uh, that kid who he's chatting up in the pub, who looks like the indie kid, uh, yeah. let's call him, uh, that's Kevin McNally, who uh, most famously is Mr Briggs, Jack Sparrow's first mate with the mutton chops in all ah. of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Mm, yeah, OK. Yeah? I mean, he's obviously older, so he's not the same, but uh, that's yeah. him. Uh, so... Uh, the reason I love uh, that little moment so much is because the dialogue is so quiet and yet I still took the time to write it down. So you can't quite hear what Colin is saying to Kevin McNally to chat him up, but you do hear what Kevin McNally says as a response and it's sort of the most beautiful and innocent and made me fall in love with him a bit. He goes, I don't like swimming very much. I'd rather stay inside, really. <laughs> it's just beautiful. And then Colin's off swimming. You're like, I can believe he said that. Do you like yep. swimming? <laughs> serious swimmer. He bloody loves swimming. I don't like swimming very much. I'd rather stay inside, really. <laughs> and then that bit's sort of done. There's a bit with a farmhouse that I'm still waiting for someone to fully explain to me. I know it's referenced later, but I don't know who the guys are because they're not Bob Hoskins' men who jumped those guys in the farmhouse who are opening the suitcase of money. And I don't think it's ever explained who they really are. I think they might be the police. <laughs> right. Or they're another gang. But whoever they are, later on, it seemed that the IRA think that Harry Shand has tipped them off. Yeah. 
So um, then we're in London and uh, Jeff's having a, a, a nice uh, nice meal with uh, the councillor, a uh, little drink on the uh, pavement there, al fresco. Uh, and uh, a woman spits a really good spit <laughs> right in his face. And uh, that is another thing that actually happened to Barry O'Keefe in real life. A woman lifted up her veil and spat, gobbed right in his face. What, did he kill her husband? Uh, he didn't explain that, but I mean, you wouldn't if you had, would you? You wouldn't go. Uh, and, and that's why. Then that's why. Yeah. So, because people would be like, yeah, good honour. So, um, <laughs> nine minutes uh, we have to wait for uh, the sexy sax to come back. <laughs> and Hoskins is here. <laughs> and about bloody time, because I need someone to explain to me what the fuck is going on in this film. <laughs> So Hoskins turns up at this point. It's a great entrance. It's I've written so down. Good. I've written down. He's either walking through the airport like a proud pit bull or a prowling pompous lion. <laughs> I wrote he's a very creamy man. Cream suit, cream shirt, and cream shoes. A lot of cream, Bob. A lot of cream. But yeah, he's great. And uh, we get. I think the first real Hoskins moment, and uh, you know, it's clear that I think he's brilliant in this. But if it wasn't, he's bloody brilliant in this. Is when he's in the car, and I've never seen anyone bloody love some blueprints so much. <laughs> uh, there's some truly wonderful teeth, lips, and tongue acting in that scene. It's, he's all sucking the teeth and rolling his tongue around his mouth. He loves those blueprints. And then uh, he's on his yacht, uh, which is lovely uh, and seems incredibly out of place uh, in the Docklands because it's nice and the Docklands don't look that great. But that's the whole point. He's bringing people down there to show them about his big plan of opening a casino and building the Olympic Stadium, uh, which he describes as terrific. <laughs> terrific. So at that point, uh, do we have any 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 feelings on Bob's entrance other than obviously he's like a proud pit bull? I was glad that he turned up because I was very distracted by Is That Charlie from Casualty? Mm. Uh, because I've got an, a, a weird hatred for Charlie from Casualty. He's called Charlie's name, Casualty. Is, yeah. I don't know why. I used to watch Casualty a lot when I um, was living in Blackburn. And for some reason, Charlie just irritated me so much and he's always in it. So then I stopped watching Casualty because of Charlie. And he's got, it's just the way he moves. It's something about, no, like, this is really awful. If, I'm sure if I met him, he's lovely. Mm. But the way he does acting, there's something he does with his chin and his lips that he does in this. I was like, oh, no. It's nice that you've sort of tried to disguise it as the character Charlie. But you mean Derek Thompson, the actor, does something when he yeah. acts. <laughs> But I just couldn't. I was like, that's fucking Charlie from Casualty. I was upset for completely the opposite reason, because I've never bloody watched Casualty, and I don't plan to. But you're right, he started on it in 1986, so what, five years, six years after he made this, and he's still in it now. Yeah. And I think, what a shame, because I've never seen him in it, and I have no plans of watching him as a Nurse Charlie Fed. I'm sure he's very good. Or he's maybe, not. Maybe not. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. But I, I wish I good. wish he'd been in more films. Is what yeah. I'm saying. I think we've lost a, a, a great actor to uh, a long a, running TV show. I 100 percent agree. And actually, I made a list here because I think the amount of TV actors that are in this film is it's the backbone of the British TV industry for the next decade. In the same way that Layer Cake has a lot of the movie stars of the next decade after that was made. But um, so you've got Charlie from Casualty. You've got Terry the Chef from Forty Towers. You've got Denzel from Only Fools and Horses. You've yes. got Jacko from Brushstrokes. You've got Kathy from EastEnders, you've got Spike from Press Gang, and then you're into the movies. You've got Belloc, you've got Hatchet Harry from Lockstock, you've got Bricktop from Snatch, and you've got James Bond as well. Oh, bloody hell, who's Bricktop in it? Um, Do you know off the top of your head? I don't remember seeing him, but I love Bricktop. 
He is. I can't remember which character he's playing. Oh, There's a lot of characters. Yeah, fine, 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 fine. I'm going to have to watch it again now, which I have no problem with doing. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and also, uh, when he's on the yacht, uh, we meet uh, the now Dame Helen Mirren, uh, who plays Victoria, uh, his other half. Uh, A bit of backstory about that. Um, She uh, read the script and bloody loved uh, the script. In her own words, she said, I was given the script... And I absolutely loved it because uh, there were so many good parts, but none for the female characters. <laughs> so what happened was, and you're right when you said earlier, Chris, Bob Hoskins was involved in writing this and the writing of it because he um, backed her up on a lot of decisions with regard to involving her character more in the story of this. And the way she described it is, I was protecting the character because the more I'm involved in the story, the less chance they have of cutting me out. So they really developed this character, which on the page was your standard gangster's mole, really. I, was, I believe they said it was a pea brain tart, is, is how they referred to her. Nice. Yeah, but uh, she went to, from being his girlfriend to be much more proactive in the story, and I think it's all the better for it. Yes. Yeah, I think there's an element of beauty in the beast of their characters, and they're very much opposite, but you believe them as a couple. Yeah. I mean, you you know, she legitimises him and, and gives him a bit of class, and he gives her a bit of power and danger, and... Um, yeah, I, re- I really like the relationship uh, that they have as it develops throughout the film. And I also really like what I'm calling Bob's Big Speech, <laughs> uh, which we'll discuss right after this break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So, Bob's big speech. Welcome back. Uh, Yeah, it's a great speech that he gives on the boat, isn't it? This. Yeah, I think it's quite chilling post-Brexit. Mm. Yeah. Um, every time he starts spouting on about how great Britain is and later on with channeling the Dunkirk spirit, I'm, a lot of things he says, I imagine Nigel Farage saying. Yeah, but that's what's interesting because that's how the argument has revolved. Because Bob Hoskins is a nationalist, so there's a lot of talk about 
like I'm paraphrasing, but we're cle- we're we're English actually, and so we're clever. We seek opportunity. We're fast on you know we're fleet of foot. And we're going to get into bed with Europe because we see an opportunity. Mm. And then he's a Remainer. Yeah, yeah. But then now where we are, the narrative has revolved. So that if you're a nationalist, it's like we don't need them. We can do it Mm. by ourselves. We'll take back control. It's that bloated sense of self-importance and that arrogance that's going to turn us into an irrelevance because of what we've chosen. Yeah, and they do the speech, uh, John McKenzie described, and doing the speech uh, on the boat uh, with Tower Bridge uh, in the background intentionally because it was uh, pillars, literal pillars of the old English empire. And then you've got uh, Shan there standing there being a, 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 describing himself as a new pillar of uh, of the country. Uh, and uh, I wonder whether he told you this story when he was on the boat with you, but he, he said he kept shouting at the captain of this boat that they were firming on. He was, he was like, because he wanted to go back to the bridge because it kept getting too far away. And he'd be like, reverse, reverse. And the captain was like, it's, that's not a word on a boat. <laughs> Don't reverse a boat. That's funny that you said that. Have you not noticed when Eric's driving the car in the first 10 minutes, he only goes backwards? <laughs> so he pulls up to the boat backwards, pulls up to church, I think, backwards, tries to go forward, fucking blows up. That's interesting. That's wow. Watch it again. <laughs> but yeah, that whole speech, um, again, sort of quite prophetic stuff in there when he talks about hands across the ocean and uh, obviously he's talking about bonding with their US guests and how that went on to mirror Thatcher's relationship with President Reagan over the future decade. A lot of prophetic stuff in this movie. Uh, and uh, also the idea that, um, you know, with him being a, a Thatcherite to a certain extent and the way he foolishly promises to crush the IRA like Beatles and the relationship uh, that Thatcher had with that organisation. Uh, mm. So, yeah, a lot of stuff in there. Um, I did just want to ask at this point, um, did you know, was this the first time you saw Bob Hoskins? Because obviously this is the first time I've seen this film. So at the point that I am watching this, like when I was sort of, you know, the first time I came across Bob Hoskins was obviously Who Framed Roger yeah, exactly. Rabbit? Mm. Yeah, yeah Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit and um, and the BT adverts as well. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's good to talk. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that? And also uh, the 1992 comedy Passed Away. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't. Could oh, you remind no. me Who's of the, the cast list? Uh, yeah, uh, Bob Hoskins and Tim Curry. Yeah. And that completes this week's obligatory Tim Curry reference. As I can hear the cheers everywhere. People are, are I know you too don't love it, but there's a lot of fans for the Tim Curry yeah, reference. That wasn't as painful as usual. It was shorter, shorter, because, <laughs> yeah, they were in a film together. So, uh, back to what's happening. Uh, Eric's been blown up, which is uh, an amazing line. I think that's the, that's the only time in the film where I don't buy Bob Hoskins' Harry Shand. That's when he says diabolical liberty. He just doesn't react like I would expect someone to react when they've just heard that news. Oh, on the phone? Yeah. Well, you don't think he's doing some good acting? Uh, no, I didn't. Is, okay. is he? I don't. I think when you obviously we'll get to the, the very last scene. I think it works if you chart the progression of Harold's emotions. Mm. In that, on the phone, he does look a bit like he's like a director's going act. He's going. Ugh. I think he's trying to display shock, but it's, it didn't quite. It didn't yeah. quite work for me. Well, I don't know. I, it, it, a bit like you, it was. It made me laugh. And I know the film does intentionally have a lot of funny lines in it. I think I wrote down more lines during this film than any film we've covered. Oh, There's yeah. so many one-liners in it. It's great, yeah. Um, sort of blackly comic, but yeah, there are. And in the scene, there's quite a few. 
Yeah, but again, like like I'm I'm saying, this was the only scene where I sort of laughed and went, oh, I'm sort of laughing at this film as mm. opposed to with yeah. it. And it is, mm. it's the it's the double whammy of him going, Eric's been blown up, and then Helen Mirren walking in and going. A bomb. Like, <laughs> what, what, what else? I'm just, yeah. So I do finally start to understand the movie and I wrote down 25 minutes. Yeah, I feel exactly the same as you. For the first 20 minutes, I was going to text you, be like, what the fuck is this? Like, I can't be arsed with any of this. And then it, it all gelled. When the strands of the story gelled together, then I was, then I thought it was fantastic. But initially, I was like, this is awful. Oh, wow. Because he gets a, he gets a double whammy. Of uh, bad news here, doesn't he? Because uh, Jeff uh, says, uh, more bad news, Colin. And he goes, Colin? He goes, yeah, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Colin, who never hurt a fly, unless it was necessary. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he's died at uh, Morden Swimming Baths, uh, which is where they actually shot uh, the swimming bath scene at the hands of baby-faced Brosnan, uh, which would have been a great character name, but isn't. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Colin's, uh, Colin doesn't really say much in this movie, which is quite unfortunate, but he does look beautiful. Uh, so, yeah, he's dead um, because the IRA uh, started to kill uh, people, but we still don't know it's the IRA at this point, and neither does Bob. Uh, he's still trying to work stuff out with some wonderful lines, uh, when obviously they're going to cart Colin's body away in an ice cream van. He goes, a lot of dignity in that, going out like a raspberry ripple. Bob Hoskins wrote that line. Yeah. The original line, which Barry Keith wrote, was a uh, lot of dignity in that, going out like a chock ice. <laughs> Are you lying? No, it's for the real. That's the real line that Barry Keith wrote. I'd love to have been in that room where they have the argument about chock ice is stupid, but raspberry ripple isn't. So <laughs> Apparently they all went, on the day when Bob went, I've got this, raspberry ripple, they all went, that's actually much better than chock ice. And you're like, man, it kind of is. So... Uh, I found at this point, for the first time, again, shortly after like the 25-minute mark, I was really gripped by the absence of knowing who it was like, yeah. and, and the confusion and his confusion, mm. which on some level I was kind of surprised by. I was like, so I don't know who the villain is, and like he doesn't. And then I sort of started to try and guess... So that's interesting because obviously I'm, I've, I've seen this five times now probably and I'm, I so know it's the IRA from moment one. It's interesting. What, to, what, what point in the film do you realise or, or do they, is it literally a, a case of them telling you in it? No, there's a cut that gave it away with Charlie from Casualty. They're in the car and the exposition is very much like, let's just restate that we all don't know what's going on. So Mm. I don't have a fucking clue who did this. And there's just, and there aren't that many cuts. I think it's interesting that you said that John McKenzie didn't like shooting on bolts, which I think is why people walk into the scenes a lot. Like Helen Mirren goes, she just pops up and says, oh, bomb, rather than cut to Helen Mirren, because there's not the room, presumably, to manoeuvre around and who can be bothered. So there is a cut, an unusual cut. Like, think of the scene when he goes to see Parky, the copper, and Charlie from Casualty drives him to see Parky. And then Bob goes, walk with me. And all they do is walk all the way down, like, the Docklands, and then get back in the car. And it's like, when you do the walk with me scene, there should be cuts, there should be POV changes. Otherwise, you're just going literally for a walk, which isn't the point of that scene. So... This unusual cut in the back of the car, Bob Hoskins says, I haven't got a clue what this is. Cut to Charlie from Casualty doing that smirk thing that I can't bear. Oh, it's Jeff. Yeah, but the IRA, you, don't, you don't know it's the IRA. I don't though, know it's the IRA, but I know that it's Jeff's fault, basically. Yeah. Well, I'm the same as Victoria, although, um, as is always the way, slightly later to the party. <laughs> it wasn't uh, until the, I think, maybe slightly more obvious bit where they're having a conversation in a room 
And Bob Hoskins says, uh, how do you manage to stay so cool? And he goes, well, I'm on the winning side. I was like, ah, yeah, it's you, Jeff, yeah. you bloody idiot. What have you done? <laughs> uh, before that, though, and we do get uh, Horse from uh, the Full Monty uh, being tortured uh, by razors, uh, which I, I found a little bit um, confusing, really, because it's like, it's like he's telling me your name, razors. Right, um, show him why it's called that. It's a machete, actually. It's like, <laughs> what? If you call razors and you're about to torture someone, should it not be with a razor? Like a cutthroat razor would have been. Sure, I'd have been like, should your name not be Machete? Is that not? Would that not be better? Because I've been led down the garden path to feel I was going to be threatened by a razor, but that's a bloody big machete. Anyway, uh, they blow up the line in the Unicorn Pub as well. There's some really unpleasant racism, though, in the scene that Vicky just referred to where um, Harry Shan is talking to the bent copper parky and then the scene in Brixton where he's referring to the streets of Brixton. And yeah, this ha- is really, really bad. Yeah, really bad. it's hard to watch. Yeah. And I don't know, how does it make you feel about Harry Shan? Do like, you, you just, like, he's an arsehole. You just, like, this boy under the car... All the fun, he's like, tell me where the grass lives. And the fun of like knocking the, he's like do, doing a tyre, isn't he? So like knocking the jack away from the car. Um, and then just to say it used to be a nice street, this, no mm. scum. It's like, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? And also this boy isn't, you, the only way to be generous with that interpretation is he's talking about, oh, there's a grass on your street, but not you in particular. Or, but that's probably not what's meant. And then as he's leaving the street, he's like, these people deserve better. And it's mm. like, who, which people? And from that point on, it's very difficult to then reconcile that I care what happens to mm. Bob Hoskins. And is that the point? Uh, you know, can you care? Are you supposed to care for him? Is is that the film challenging you? Or do you think this is just... A product of its time. Yeah. Yeah. Which obviously makes it a much more problematic film. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I actually unfortunately think it's the latter. Me I too. think it, I think it's a product of that period because I don't think I think they want to sort of toe the line between Harold Chan being a likable anti-hero as opposed to just a, a terrible person. Yep. And I think at this point uh, you go, no, he's a terrible person mm. because of when the film was made. But uh, on a lighter note. Um, the line in the Unicorn pub, uh, which they blow up, uh, was such a convincing set that they built because no pub would let them blow up their pub, weirdly <laughs> enough. Uh, again, I couldn't work out what John McKenzie was saying. He was like, we approached a lot of pubs and said, can we blow them up? And they were like, no. <laughs> so they built that pub and it looked so realistic. In the middle of shots, uh, people would walk in and order drinks at the bar <laughs> and John McKenzie would have to call cut and people didn't even realise there was no back on the building. But it's a great explosion, a proper 1980s explosion. I miss explosions like that in films. They're great. Great. Uh, so they blow it up. Then um, we've got... Uh, it was starting to make sense of this because uh, the councillor, who uh, a bit of a sloppy drunk at dinner, uh, goes, about, oh, you've got it wrong, Victoria. I'm not the bastard he is about <laughs> Jeff. Did you notice in the restaurant scene that four people order dinner without saying food? <laughs> They go soup du jour, which is food, but not what soup. The usual, I'll have what she's having, just the special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although that the buffet they have from the, the chef, who's he's making me go potty with the smells coming up from the galley, uh, that made me hungry. That was a beautiful spread. I was starving at that point. That's a hangover for you. Um, 
Uh, we get that wonderful upside down in the abattoir scene as he's gathered all his cronies together, all the people who he's been looking after and keeping the peace with. Um, they're turned upside down, which is a really cool shot where they got it. You can see the point of view of one of the criminals turned upside down because they hung a cameraman upside down to do that, which was the cameraman's decision. He just went... Get me upside down, it'll be great. And it is great. And Gangsters and Freezers, you had it, came up again in Goodfellas a decade later, the Pusher trilogy, if you've ever seen that, mm. uh, and even Layer Cake. So it sort of started a trend for villains in freezers. Yeah. Then, um, oh, then Harold and Victoria have a bit of a falling out uh, in which he goes, bollocks, you smart-ass prat, <laughs> to her. I shouldn't have made me laugh, but did. It's funny. It, it is, is right? funny. It's nice that he calls her a prat. Yeah. I think it shows a lot of respect because it's he takes the gender out of that term. It's normally something you say to men, I think. Mm. I don't think you call women prats. There are worse things you could have called her, but he called her a prat because he loves her. Yeah. And, he, like that. and he pushes her. He, he does, does. Say, yeah. And this is such a shocking moment. And after all these violent things he's done and these horrible things he's said, the moment he pushes her, he's like, oh, he's losing it now. Mm. Um, and I think it's a very effective scene because she's scared for the first time. And, and famously, there was supposed to be a sex scene here. But Helen Mirren suggested that they have something a bit more tender where you see their fear and their humanity and their vulnerability. Mm. But she's not scared of him at that point. She's scared of of the uh, yeah of, of what's happening of it's, death. Yes, of being, she's going of to being die. Killed, which is if they didn't have that moment in it where she sort of talks about you know that being her absolute fear, then that final shot of her in the car, which is like something ripped out of a fucking horror movie, mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't be quite so effective. But we haven't got there yet because if this was a forerunner to um, Harold really losing it, then. Uh, the poor old Jeff, uh, he gets his bloody comeuppance on, uh, on the yacht, doesn't he? Uh, smashed over the head because uh, he finds out, does Harold, that Jeff's basically, and this is where you finally, I guess, sort of understand what's going on. So Colin was carrying some money from the councillor to Belfast to pay off the IRA so that they keep his Irish workers working on his building site. It doesn't still tell us exactly who those men were who broke into the farmhouse at the start, but we get that Jeff has basically done this without consulting Harold. But Jeff isn't the villain because he doesn't really... I don't. Th- I, I could never quite work out, and I've only seen it once, so I never worked out whether he knew, like, whether this was playing into him wanting to usurp Yeah, a power Harold. grab. But uh, then why would you have had the scene in the lift um, earlier where he propositions Bob Hoskins' partner? What I would say is, choose your moment, Jeff. This now is not the time <laughs> to try and shag Helen Mirren. Yeah. Right in this 24-hour period when all this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. Um, I, I don't think it is, Alex. And I think he even says it himself in this scene. I think uh, he was frightened for his life. And to save his own skin, he fingered Harry. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, no, I, my mind just went somewhere else then because I watched uh, Derek Thompson talking about how he felt that there might have been a, a sort of slightly homosexual feeling that Jeff had. Uh, for Harold, and then so that's where my mind went. What, the fact that I said fingers. Yep, that's it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought I saw that little look in your eyes. Well, I just felt we'd had a lot of intelligent conversations this episode, <laughs> so I wanted to bring it back down to my level. Um, but that scene, um, I, I I watched this with the the commentary on with John McKenzie, and he says he makes a big point of saying that they, he he wrote the film and uh, wrote, rewrote the scene and shot the scene so that uh, Harry kills Jeff inadvertently, accidentally. Now. I'm going to accept that it wasn't premeditated, but he stabs him in the neck several times with a broken <laughs> bottle. There's nothing inadvertent or accidental about that. Yeah, 
I think what did he, I, I had a quote somewhere. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to find it now, but he does talk about how it makes people sort of said to him, "That's a really violent scene." And he was like, "There's the the there is no other way of showing that scene unless I sort of show what Harold's done to Jeff and and then show him reacting and his realization that he's killed his best friend." You know, that was the only way to show it. So the violence is allowed in that mm, point. And it's very effective and very believable. When that blood is gushing out of his neck, yeah. that looks absolutely real. Yeah. yeah. It's the shaking that Derek Thompson does in Harold's arms as his life ebbs out of him. Those judders, I really didn't like that. It's a terrific actor. Yeah. Great actor. Um, well, Harry, I like I like Harry Shand the way he comes out of the boat then, um, covered in blood, and I feel like he reminded me of Captain Caveman in this scene, where he's just lashing out like a madman. Yeah, but that's one of this is one of my favourite bits because when we're talking about Helen Mirren's character being amped up a bit and having more to do, it's it's like who dares to touch an angry man scene? So he's furious, and everyone's trying to stop him from getting in the car to mm. go and he knocks her down. Yeah, but she goes back, and so she goes back, and she like she doesn't she like hold it. Well, well, she starts off, but she hits him. Yeah, she does. She, she hits him twice, slaps him twice. And then the quote I would use, Alex, is I felt like she should have said, hey, big guy, sun's getting real low. <laughs> <laughs> because no, but that is what she does. She can't. Her job in life really is to calm Harry Shan down. And that's yeah. what she's so good at. Yeah. Yeah, and we're into the final uh, hurdle here. Um, I, I, my notes uh, decrease in volume at this point because I was really quite gripped by what was happening on screen. Do you know what I did? I when I finished the film and I went back and watched the fi- the last half hour again because mm. I enjoyed it so much. From the the, the scene in the boat with Jeff mm. to the scene with the IRA to the scene in the hotel room to the scene in the taxi. That is a fantastic twenty five minutes. That I, I was just it just jaw dropping. I think filmmaking. Yeah, for sure. The bit at the uh, demolition derby uh, the, uh, that uh, Bob Hoskins goes to. And the film sort of asks you to work out a little bit of stuff because I was a bit confused the first time I saw it as to what was go- what had actually gone on. So I thought Bob Hoskins was genuinely like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to pay him off 60 grand. We'll call an end to this. And then you see the sniper in looking mm. down. And I was like... I- and because it sort of sets up in your head that the IRA are going to kill him, because I think that's that's an IRA sniper pointing their yeah. gun at Bob Hoskins. So then when the door gets kicked down and some men who you don't really see just yeah. burst in with shotguns and blow away the councillor uh, and the IRA boss, I was like, what, what's what's happening here? Um, but it is Bob Hoskins' men. It's his guys who yeah, yeah, kill people. It's Terry, the chef from 40 Towers. Right. It's one of them. But it, it's but it's the, the counselor says to him, "You can't reason with these guys," and that's the crux of the film. Yeah. It's a capitalist against a terrorist, <laughs> and one's all about greed. But one has these ideals that you cannot argue with, and that's why ultimately he he's never going to win this yeah, battle. Yeah, because he's trying to be, he's trying to play with politics, which is why he's involved with counselors, which is why he's trying to like be a bit legit. And he's ten years of peace, and you know, and all of that. But then the descent back to what he, you know, how he would have been coming up, which is just like pure violence. He thinks he's a politician, not a politician, but he thinks he's playing the same game as everyone else. But to think that you can settle something with the IRA, even with 60 grand, not going to happen, or even by killing two people, is never, ever going to happen. For that reason that the council says, like, if you chop off their head, another head pops up, whatever he says. But also that you aren't the politician that you think you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't have dealt with it like that. And you can't help reverting to who you actually are when it all kicks off. And that's something that those Americans who are from the mafia, Mm. as he calls them, although I don't think you call them the mafia to their face. I don't think they use that phrase themselves. But, um, yeah, that's something they do understand. They can 
deal with politics as yeah. well as violence, but that's how, something that Harry just can't grasp. Yeah, he does call them it to their face in the end after they say, we're leaving, uh, and Harry, Harold is obviously uh, falsely confident that he's sorted everything out. He's like, no, nah, I sorted it. And then they're like, we're off, uh, we're not doing this. And he's like, the Mafia, I shit them. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, the Mafia. <laughs> I'll shit him. Uh, it's when he says, shut up, you streak of paralysed piss. Um, he is, and- though. I've, do you know when when a character gets called exactly what they feel, that you feel that they should be called? Because Tony, like Charlie's right-hand man, his lawyer, does feel like a streak of paralysed piss for the mm. whole movie. Mm. So it's a really, really good line. We've given the world culture, sophistication, genius, a little more than a hot dog. <laughs> so many good lines. And then obviously he leaves to get back in his car with Victoria, thinking he's going to go and uh, do a deal with the Germans. But uh-oh, uh, baby-faced Brosnan and his his gentleman helper are in the car and he's in there and he watches Helen Mirren being dragged off in a different car in that really, just like the way she presses her hand up against the glass and then the arm comes around and just sort of drags her back into the gloom. And then you get that wonderful, wonderful, iconic last scene, which is just five minutes on Bob Hoskins' face as he realises things haven't gone to plan. Yeah, it's a very extended, someone going, bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, a few years ago when I was walking down Waterloo, you know that little skate park? Yes. They've got there. I saw that bit of graffiti, <laughs> which is uh, a close-up of, the close-up of Hoskins' face, which is quite startling. Um, it's, either, it, it, it's either that or Alexi Sale. It's <laughs> one of the two. I'll post it on the Twitter room and the, the, our listeners can decide. But um, it lasts for two minutes, actually, because um, uh, I timed it this time. How, at what point did you realise this is, they're not going to, this is it? I mean, quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. And I was just amazed to, then I thought, then I relaxed because I knew what was going to happen and was just having the treat of watching him do, he's better, I mean, Bob Parsons is better in this film. He's brilliant when he's with Helen Mirren and, and then when he's by himself, like, possibly because of my prejudice towards Charlie from Casualty. I don't, I don't like those scenes as much. When he's by himself, like, what an amazing thing to watch. So, so the director, um, he said he didn't want to do this. He didn't really understand how to do it. And the director said, look, if you do it right, the camera can see what you're thinking. And Hoskins didn't believe him. but that, So that's the director in the front seat driving the car, talking him through the plot of the film yeah. or what's happening in this scene. And he's reacting to what he's being told. And, and they nearly cra- he nearly crashed the car because he, he was so focused on him in the back seat. <laughs> yeah. Because sadly... On the, well, he nearly <laughs> went into a bus in Trafalgar Square. Like, for real, he talks about it like, oh, I very nearly killed. <laughs> but in the documentary, uh, Pierce Brosnan uh, on, on, the, on the Blu-ray talks about the fact that he never met Bob Hoskins. Mm. And they were never oh, in that... He's not in the and car. I'm really sad I knew that. I'm, I'm, now you're all sad you heard that. But yeah, he, he said, um, yeah, I was never in that car with him at any point, which I think it's a shame because he said it's a, he said I get amazed when I'm watching it on screen and you've got one of the great cinematic moments and yet it's completely artificial. Yeah. Also, I've, I, I think I think it's very bold that Bob didn't go. Let's not shoot this scene where you've put it in the schedule because this was the first thing they shot on oh, the movie. Wow. Like the very first scene was him okay. reacting, and it's like so relive the last forty eight hours, and he's like, "Well, should we not do this last?" <laughs> <laughs> but no, they did it first. But it's 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 such a good scene. Such a wonderful scene. And on that note, unless there's any more for any more, do you want to do the bits? I've got a couple of bits. 
that I want to do. Okay. First. Um, so there was talk of there being a remake of this. It was going to be set in Miami, directed by Paul W. S. Anderson. <laughs> um, That's great. I want to see that. Here's what Barry Keefe had to say about that. He said it fills me with absolute loathing and wouldn't have much to do with what I've written. But I did write a sequel called Black Easter Monday. It was set 20 years on, and the Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren characters were still around. Harold comes back to East London to rescue it from the Yardies, having been in Jamaica, where he took his retirement. Yeah. And apparently, it, I mean, it obviously was never made, but I think it was Hoskins who backed out in the end. And how he got out of Hoskins being killed at the end of the film, he said what he'd written is, with all the bombings going on at the time in the film, there are roadblocks at the Strand when he comes out of the Savoy and the car is stopped by the police. The gunman has to put away the gun and Harold gets out of the car and says, this is like a fucking Irish joke. Goodbye. And that's the beginning of the sequel. Or drives into the back of a bus. Takes <laughs> <laughs> out. Any more for any more? No, that's your lot. Okie dokie. Time to do the bits. Uh, so, uh, best scene. Uh, who wants to go first? Uh, Victoria. Great. It's just the scene. It's just the shot at the end. It's the, it's the best thing in the film, but it's, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. It's wonderful. Chris? Arrogance, anger, frustration, fear, resignation, defeat, surrender, admiration. That's what I reckoned. I just uh, picked the same scene and uh, wrote uh, teeth, lips and gums because he's got, it's all going on. Just watch that mouth. That mouth is working overtime in that scene. His tongue is just rolled round every corner. His teeth are licked. His lips are licked. It's incredible. I think it might be my favourite ending in all of cinema. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Uh, so, MVW Victoria. Just Bob Hoskins. Chris. Oh, I've got two honourable mentions. Uh, one honourable mention, and that's Francis Monkman for that music. Wait, 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 you're, wait, you're slag. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, key change. Breathe it in. <sighs> and it's used sparingly. I think it's only used three times in the film. That's correct. But that makes it all the more effective. But I, I'm not copying Vicky, but I am. Uh, Hoskins, funny, menacing, tragic. He's racist, he's violent, he's a misogynist, and yet he somehow brings out the vulnerability in this character. And it is uh, the best performance of a truly great actor, I think. Yeah, I mean, mine is Bob Hoskins as well. Um, uh, and having watched so many interviews uh, with him around... Uh, preparing for the show I, he just genuinely seems like a bloody lovely man a really decent bloke and i ended up on this which i'm just going to play you a little bit of but it's really interesting because obviously in uh, the long good friday he's uh, trying to redevelop uh, the docklands and in real life he was a campaigner against overdeveloping uh, that region and there's a 1982 uh, barry norman film omnibus uh, in which he walks around london with Bob Hoskins. I'll just play you the start just to whet your appetite. You can go and find it on YouTube. God, this is good. You're on Good Friday there, Bob. You had that diatribe about what they were doing to London. Now, how much of that was the actor and how much of that was Bob Hoskins expressing his own beliefs? Well, I thought it was going over the top. I thought it was all sort of, you know, fairyland. But after finding out what's been going on down here... That makes, that makes a longer Friday look like a story out of Winnie the Pooh. Well, what is going on? Well, the, that, for example, look at that. Got a great Mars bar on the tent. 
But it's sort of an office block, actually. But yeah, it's a large block. But there's £1,200 million pounds worth of redevelopment right the way down the river. The whole lot. Can you imagine that? The whole thing's up for grabs. Makes a 60s sort of redevelopment epidemic look like a little rash. You see that building there? Yeah. Now, between there and here, there's going to be a bleating great block of offices is going to go up in between us. And that's just a fraction of the mile-long slab of buildings that will change the face of Waterloo and the river there. And so it goes on. It's yeah, really it's worth you. You've watched it as well. I have watched yeah. it, yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. Um, although we're all saying how lovely Bob Hoskins is, I have got a quote from that's slightly disturbing um, on Harry Shand. He says, I suppose it was me, really. The character was me, apart from being a gangster. Quite emotional, not always going the straight route. He's climbing up the tree of his profession. I didn't have to work hard as it was because that's who I was. That's slightly disturbing, Bob. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, it is. But also, uh, I guess, like, there was... Uh, what did I see? There was a quote where he was... I couldn't... Re- I'm, I, I need to look it up so I can't find it now. If I can find it, I'll drop it in later. Uh, so, oh, finally, a uh, difficult one this week, but uh, what would you change, Victoria? Um, more scenes with Helen Mirren and Bob Hoskins that are about their relationship and not so much about what's happening, which would add to the time, so I don't think we should lose anything. But so the uh, the easy comparison would be uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, but that's a bit too easy. So I was if we're transcending the trope of a gangster's mall, which this film does, so double tick, maybe we could have a little bit more time about what is actually behind their relationship. Like why is she with him? Because we're saying it's not just about power, and why why does he trust her so much? And they they do seem to be in it together. So like why essentially? Mm-hmm. Because it it raises those questions because it takes us out beyond the usual bollocks that women get in films like this but doesn't quite go far enough but just for me it's just a personal thing because that scene where she is the person that calms him down that's that tells you everything you need to know about them but we i would have liked a few more of those the scene where she cry where he makes her cry because he pushes her i just didn't buy that that much like i didn't think that was that big a deal which maybe says more about me but also the other scene where they're in bed and they're sort of worried about what's going to happen. He's wearing the smallest dressing gown I've seen on a man in a long time and they're constantly smoking and it just really distracted me. And I couldn't concentrate on their relationship. So I was like, when he stands up, you're going to see his bum. And it worried me. So <laughs> That's a good one, you smart-ass prat. <laughs> it's still funny. <laughs> Chris? Um, you know, talking about the, the racist language used and talking about it being a product of its time, I mean, I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I, well, the first time I watched this was much nearer to when it was actually made. And I remember being incredibly shocked by uh, the words that were used in the film. So um, I do think it changes your opinion of Harry as it's supposed to when he says some of that stuff. But also, I think it would be nice if someone called him out yeah. on his language. He could snap back at them because that's who he is. Mm-hmm. But I really feel like the film needed that yeah, moment. Yeah, it's just left there. It's the same in Layer Kick. It's just left there. Yeah. There's no need for it. Well, my change is that you just can't call it the Long Good Friday if it's over Saturday as well. (laughs) I'm just saying, it's not... If you're going to call the film the Long Good Friday, then all the action needs to take place on Good Friday and it's just a hell of a day for Harold. The fact that it takes place over Saturday is like, oh, it's a Long Good Friday. Yeah, most of bloody Saturday too. (laughs) It should be called a shitty Easter weekend for Harold, uh, in my uh, opinion. Uh, You know. Maybe it carried on into Sunday as well. (laughs) 
very, very <laughs> stupid. If anything, that's because there's not a lot I'd change about this film. <laughs> that is the long Good Friday done and dusted on this episode of Clash Pod. Right. Any other business uh, before Victoria gives us her clue? Oh, it's the bloody quiz. Who's doing the quiz? Chris. Oh, this should be good. <laughs> Cockney quiz. Yay. How's your Cockney rhyming slang? Fucking brilliant. So uh, <laughs> let's see how many of these you get right or Pete Tong, which is wrong. I know that. Okay. Uh, what is uh, Vera? Vera Lane Gin. Yes. yes. <laughs> She's good. Is it stairs? <laughs> Don't what, go too early on that one. Right. What is a uh, battle? Stairs. Battle, cattle, cow. Uh, okay, rattle. Give the baby its, its battle. It's, it's a battle. About, what is a battle cruiser? A ship. A loser. <laughs> a bruiser. <laughs> a floozer. It's a boozer. It's a pub. Oh, is it? <laughs> Get on a battle cruiser. <laughs> uh, what is the Bob Hope? A rope. <laughs> it's not far off. Really? A tope, the fish. <laughs> Top the colour brown. What would you get on a rope? Soap. Correct. Soap. Yay. <laughs> Stairs. Um, who is a septic? Septic tank. Wanker. Wanker. <laughs> this one's xenophobic. Oh. A yank. Correct. Oh. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, what are your Alan Wickers? Your knickers. Correct. <laughs> Shit, I could have got that one. All right, I like this one a lot because I only learned this a few uh, quite recently. So, what is what is the Sweeney? The Sweeney Todd, the police, the mob, the mob, the Fob. gangsters. The, the TV show does come from it being Cotney rhyming slang of police, but what is the actual phrase? The Sweeney. who are the Sweeney? The Sweeney, the Sw- Beanie um, Babies. They are the flying squad. Oh, Sweeney right. Todd. Where's where the Sweeney oh, comes from? Of course okay. they are. Who is <laughs> who is the baked bean? Queen! Correct! Oh. Oh, thanks. I'll have and, one. And final one. What are Lionel Blairs? Stairs! Bloody yeah. stairs! No. Nope. I know oh. this. Trousers. Flares! Yes! Oh. Trousers. <laughs> well played, both of you. That was 4-2 to Vicky. Well played, Vicky. You are a cockney. Oh, uh, right then. So, looking ahead to next week, an early clue. Obviously, we're back on Thursday to uh, have a slice of a layer cake. But before then, or rather after then, we'll be doing Victoria's choices next week. So, uh, shall we have an early clue for your choices, V? The clue is, what a difference 10 years makes. What a difference 10 years makes. That's a great clue. Very little to me. I'm not ageing like <laughs> other people. Mm, yeah, I've got a great new cream. Stem cells. Uh, so, that's lovely. Uh, uh, what a difference 10 years makes. That's your early clue. Uh, that's us gone thank you very much for listening Uh, please do subscribe to us uh, wherever you get your podcasts Apple, Spotify or other rate your reviewers if you can it really is fundamentally very much appreciated by us three here in the studio so thanks again and we'll be back on Thursday with Layer Cake Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.